Hi, and welcome to Andy Wire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fall, the editor of the Toolkit. My guest today, Mr. Robot Creator, writer, director, San Esmail, who is, I, and I did not realize this till yesterday when I talked to your cinematographer, is actually taking a break from the middle of shooting season three to come here to talk about uh, season two, right? You're right in the middle of uh, uh, Yeah, we're right in the middle of uh, shooting. We actually just finished day 24 yesterday. And you're doing two blocks this time, right? Yeah. Two blocks. Yeah. So I have to imagine that, um, like anybody, you were very relieved that the WGA was able to work out a deal. But I, I imagine in particular for you, having just started season three, being a WGA member, but also being a, a showrunner, that that had to have been a huge stress and a big relief that that, that you, not you, only that there's a good deal, but that that's behind you now. Yes, it was a, it was it was very stressful because um, I do wear multiple hats and uh, and there is no clear cut sort of role for a person like me because um, technically, if I'm in the DGA and tech, and if I were just in the DGA, I would actually. Uh, uh, and I and I I would actually be able to write on the show or you know or to or to initiate at least on set rewrites, but because I'm in the WGA, it's not like I can't pretend that I'm you know that I'm not for the sake of the strike. So it, it, I was in a very gray area. I'm glad it's behind us. I'm glad we were able to figure out a good deal. Especially the way you do it, because it just ramps up and. Yeah, you, you go right through with your show. One thing I want to talk, really focus on, and I know this might be hard for you because I'm sure your mind so right now is in Elliot season three. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to go back to, to season two. Yeah, season. yeah. But um, I really want to focus on the changes from season one to season two because it, um, I mean, obviously, everybody focuses on the fact that um, you, you started directing every episode, but there's also some very fundamental changes of how that show was made and and, and the production and. And in my mind, and I'd like to hear from you about it, it really became your mode of production became more of a movie production, right? Which it goes well even beyond you directing, right? How 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 did the Mr. Robot apparatus change from one to two? Well, I just you know for me the visual language uh, of any movie or TV show is incredibly important, and mm -hmm. to a certain extent, anytime you watch anything. Within those first few minutes, uh, you have to start to train the audience how to watch the story that you're about to tell. Mm -hmm. um, especially if you're, you know, kind of committing to a specific tone or, or, or look. Um, there's going to be that sort of those training wheels. With, t with, with TV, the way it is structured, you have to essentially have an hour-long meeting with every director to explain your entire tone and the way you operate and, and the way you uh, want it to look and feel. And it's just a little silly to expect that in an hour long tone meeting that's gonna come across. Obviously they can watch prior episodes, but it was, it, to, for me at least, it was an incredibly difficult thing to negotiate every time. Um, so, so and, and for and because our show is is very sort of specific in its tone, I thought going into the second season that we should, uh, you know, that I should direct all the episodes. We should uh, shoot it in the way that the movie uh, is shot, where we can kind of go all over uh, the the entire twelve episode arc, ten episode arc, and and um, and shoot out locations, and that way we don't have to compromise so much. Uh, when we do find a location and then have to then keep going back every episode and cheat other locations to make that day work, you know, that kind of thing. It avoided a lot of those traps. 
Beyond the fact that the show has a distinct look, there also is a, you're enabling um, your cinematographer, your production designer, all your amazing below the line talent to really also do their job more in yes. a block shooting situation. You know, like Todd Campbell does not have to return to a location four times and struggle with that location. Rather, he can sit there and prep, figure out what the, how he's gonna arc this story for a particular location for a lighting design and also work to schedule that you're there at the right time. And, and it feels to me like, in general from that, the show was able to even tighten its look, tighten its language. Once again, even beyond you directing, which I want to talk about, right. but like that is something where in TV, just by the net, by the the nature of things, it's kind of like, oh, we have to deal with this, we have to deal with this episode to episode. Right. Everybody is kind of thinking in that like absolutely that movie language. And 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 it it just goes to the fact that you will have to make compromises. We're not the type of show that is on set a lot mm -hmm. you know we're not like four days in three days out type of thing mm -hmm. we shoot we're in new york city we're going to shoot new york fucking city i mean why wouldn't you so um so the fact that we are so location dependent was another thing that just you know for that product the kind of episodic production structure just didn't work for that because you literally had to comp make compromises constantly for other scenes to fit locations you know every every episode and to and like what you said it really hindered the creative process when it came to our production designer our uh, our uh, cinematography our lighting design um, because they couldn't ever get a rhythm you know we're there for like two eighths of a page and then um, we kind of have to go very fast and then, and then you go to the compromise location that's like a, a push move two blocks away and then um, call it a day um, so I think it, for exactly the reasons you just said, the fact that we, block sh we were able to block shoot, we were able to have a more cohesive vision to the whole season. And, and you're not, we don't have to get into this, but this, is, this isn't The Crown, this isn't Game of Thrones. This is, this right. is, a, this is a, I think people would be shocked how, how the, the limited resources that you are, you are right. making Mr. Robot with. And you have... Um, in my estimation, and I'm catching up on TV, so there might be some other, but you guys have the best locations um, in the sense that there's something, they reference a world, like you get to reference that kind of corporate, you know, masters right. of the universe, you get to that kind of gritty kind of out in Coney Island world, but there's something realistic about it, but there's also something very movie-ish about it. There's something very designed about that to the point that like I think at first when you see them, you almost think they're built. And they're right. not their locations, and uh, so kind of a twofold question. I think off this, you're only able to do that with the blocks because you can't be returning to a corporate office like right. five, six times over an episode. But then also that element of what do you? Because you know, I imagine that you are part of this decision. What is that when you're looking for a location, and and how have you been able to get some some of these places that have such distinct looks to them? I mean, I know you guys add your own right. your, your your lenses and your lights and stuff, but there some of them are so yeah it, of a world. It's honestly we have a great locations department. Um, they uh, they know sort of what I like, what what Todd's needs are. You, you know, putting aside create creative just the needs of how our, you know, from how we shoot the show, we're very low angle, we see ceilings all the time, lots of headroom, 
um, so we that we can't be in, in locations with, with low ceilings and we need to have the room to kind of do a lot of kind of our uh, you know wonders I, I like to say so um, <clears throat> so there's there's a kind of the logistical they kind of weed out a lot of location logistically but then at the end of the day Todd uh, uh, Stasha and I, uh, Stasha Anastasia, uh, our production designer, and I, we then go after after they've kind of isolated those locations, and um, it's. I'll, I'll give you an example: the diner uh, in season two that uh, Elliot and and um, and his Leon, friend talk yeah, about Seinfeld. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that diner is insane, but we we and and I've never seen that diner before. Like I've never, maybe I've seen it, but I've never seen our locations department found. It. I think it was like somewhere in Brooklyn, you know. And we had found another diner already, and it was a great diner, and it was actually very easy to work in, um, and it was in a kind of a good location because I think we needed to pair it with one other little thing, and um, and so it all just kind of you know. But it was a diner. It was a diner. And, you know, and we had some ideas on how to kind of add our little, uh, you know, kind of aesthetic to it. But then, then our locations department found this really odd pink and salmon, co you know, colored uh, diner out in the middle of nowhere. And, I mean, we just all fell in love with it. And even though logistically it was actually kind of worse, um, we just creatively it just sparked to the three of us. And I really, that's really what it is. It's letting the locations kind of tell us. Uh, if we get, if we really like, kind of look at each other and get super excited, we we know we got to shoot there. Do you ever give them any references? Is there anything like a, a yeah, sense of space? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I like to do constantly, and this goes for production design, but also cinematography, is I constantly pull stills. I mean. Yeah, Todd um, told me yesterday that you were constantly showing him little clips. <laughs> I would go on Amazon Prime. I bought like because I just now at this point I just buy them uh, on Amazon. You're Prime. part of the reason that the, Jeff Bezos is about exactly, to become the richest man exactly. in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I well and if there's a camera move, I show it to the camera mm -hmm. operator. This is how I want mm -hmm. it to to go. And um, and but uh, and then I show reference uh, photos and stills to Stasha and sometimes it's not literally from a movie but it could just be a feeling this whatever this photo that I just saw online or uh, you know um, or if I see a billboard out there we've got to make you know got to do something with that there's always like kind of we take as much as we can and we always share and that, that, that goes for them too they send me stuff all the time as well so in terms of the film language of season two, uh, you had referenced Warner's. Uh, there is a um, far more determined look to it. I, I don't notice an attempt to, I mean, you've never done normal coverage with your compositions and right. stuff, but there's also even just, I, I don't know if, if you're shooting the coverage and not using it, but there are a lot of shots that are relying on one distinct, very determined look and yeah. move. Um, was that something conscious? Is that something that is really a part of you now directing all of these? Is it, it almost seems like, and I don't mean to be condescending to season one, because uh, it's great, but there is an evolution and a, a more sophistication of the of the film language in season two. No, and I actually I very much agree with that, and it, and it has nothing to do with everyone involved in season one, but um, I think it's just by the nature of TV, TV production. I think you couldn't find that. Uh, kind of singular vision uh, every episode. Um, and directors have to cover their ass. Like, directors they, 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 have to they, cover they, their they ass. can't. They, they can't be. Yeah. They're not going to get work if they're like, 
why am I looking at one angle here? Where's my close-up? Where's right. my, you know, no matter how much confidence you give them. Well, I think because, I think when you start, when you go into a scene and you start, you rehearse the scene, right? You have all the actors there and they start doing their thing. You're, you're kind of wired in production, um, especially if you're a, sort of a journeyman in TV directing, especially, just like what you're saying, you're kind of wired to count the pieces of coverage you need to get you know, every single of everybody talking in the scene and maybe a master and maybe some different sizes mm -hmm. and, you know, at least it's, an editor can put that together mm -hmm. and have it make sense. Um, and then, and then uh, honestly, because of schedule, you don't typically have the luxury of saying, well, hold on, that's how you cover the scene, but who is this scene about? What is the point of view of this scene? What, and then from that, what is the most dynamic way to shoot that? And maybe it's not, it, you never even see the other person that Darlene is talking to, you're just doing a slow dolly push in on her, and that's the, and then you're out. Mm -hmm. and you, but you don't, you never quite take the time up front. To, and, and eventually though, you know, like you know, the, uh, the shot I just explained, like that, that would be something that you could actually be done with the scene much, much sooner if you were to sort of, make that commitment, but it requires that sort of prep up, up front to think about that scene and then to, to kind of make that decision, and it is a bold decision, but if I'm not there, do they, do they can they, you know, a TV director make that decision on their own? They're probably not going to feel mm -hmm. confident enough to do that. So the, there, there are those, those liberties that because I'm there, I can say, no, let's, th this is the scene. We, we only need to do a push in on Darlene and then we, and then we need to move on. Um, and I think, honestly, that's, you know, so the, the, you know, to, to watch a scene that's just covered, that you're just essentially documenting the action, um, that's not, that's not, you know, for me, that's not showing a real sense of point of view or a real mm -hmm. strong sense of point of view. Um, that's giving me the information and telling me the story, but it's, it's in the how. And I think that, again, directing all of them and being able to shoot it in this way affords us that kind of flexibility. Who are your filmmaker, filmmaking influences? I, I, I'm seeing, it's funny, I, my sense of who you were as a filmmaker has changed in watching season two, and, and largely of, because of these determined warners and this, right. and this, this movement. And is there, is there is, I'm sure it's a, a modulation of a whole bunch of yeah. people, but. Well, I, Kubrick is really the one that sticks out the most because um, I love highly composed shots. Mm -hmm. um, and Bergman, I would throw Bergman in there. Um, I, I, I think it was, it was I, I'm gonna paraphrase him, I'm gonna butcher it, but you know, he, he, I think he said something like, every shot is a moral decision, <laughs> something really uh, profound and serious like that. But, um, but I, I, I do, whenever we set up the camera, and I've, cause I've been on other productions where they're like, okay, 35 here, medium, mm -hmm. and then they walk away. But whenever we set up the camera, I look at it. I work. Uh, our great, I have a great camera operator, Aaron Medic, and um, and we fine tune it. I mean, inches to make sure. And we're doing it with this, you know, the stand, and then we get the real person. and We fine tune it again. Um, it's something that we all take seriously. Every uh, every move. Um, uh, it, it, it's just so so to so to get back to Kubrick. That's what I feel with Kubrick. Mm -hmm. Everything just feels incredibly composed mm -hmm. and deliberate 
and there isn't um, a, a lot of room for error. I, yeah, I'm not a fan of handheld because of that, because it just does feel all over the place, mm -hmm. unless that feels incredibly deliberate. And I, I'd say like Lars von Trier comes closest to me appreciating handheld, because I think what he does, there's something, uh, there's a real intentionality behind that attitude. I, 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 I think P.T. Anderson, because of his long takes, um, is another you know filmmaker that I really look up to. Yeah, USA though isn't giving you the shining production schedule. No, <laughs> you're not gonna you're not gonna you're not gonna no. have a year with these people. No, no. <laughs> Having, uh, or being able to do 99 takes. <laughs> not that anyone I think wants to do that. Um, you know, you've been um, very open about um, your struggles with um, social anxiety, and as I think about Mr. Robot, and, and once again, watching from season one to season two, and, I, and this is maybe a very easy question after the conversation we just had, there's an element here of the story, the, the, these scripts are great, they've got, they capture a, a real world of paranoia, but there's an element here that I feel like as a storyteller, you're talking about how you can make the show better and, and how there's greater efficiency with if the way you've changed, but there's also an element of you as a storyteller that feels to me like this, that is, is, is a more of a filmmaker world than a writer world. Like that there is this element here. And I, I believe you came up wanting to be, like I, I haven't seen your, your feature that you made a few years ago, but the idea of being a writer, director, right. uh, feature filmmaker. But there is that element here of part of that story. And, and part of it is also um, Elliot's mental state, which is such a tricky thing where it's disorientation, but there's also has to be enough orientation that the story flows. It feels to me like that's something that's like, I don't know if it's personal or a personal vision, but that almost feels like was a missing ingredient that had to come from, from you in terms of the visual story. Yeah, I, 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 and the thing is when I write, I think visually. I never write, you know, initially, um, I actually just wanted to direct. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I never fancied myself a writer. I didn't. I didn't think I'd ever be any good at it. And um, and the way my career sort of started out, I actually I read, you know because I was frustrated with all the scripts I was getting. I was looking for a script to direct, just as an indie, mm -hmm. couldn't find anything, and I wrote a script um, to direct myself. It ended up getting on the blacklist. And then I was kind of ushered in as a writer, and nobody would let me direct. They were like, "Oh no, no, you're you do this now." Um, but and, and so I struggled. I struggled a lot because the way I write is visual, and I couldn't fathom writing something and just handing that off to somebody. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit like again that first season handing off this. The, the script because a lot of it was when when I wrote that scene I pictured the images and the way I would write it to a certain extent would just be that blueprint for the for, for the you know um, for the final uh, you know show or movie or whatever whatever it is so um, you know it, it, it to, to me I don't and I know uh, there's a lot of disagreement about this because I think even Tarantino says, there is the script, and that's its own piece. Mm -hmm. And then you adapt the script into a movie, and then that becomes its own thing. For me, it's like the the step to me is I'm writing this to make that. There is this this isn't anything without the the the, the movie, and so therefore 
And it's because of that layer, the visual layer, this, like the tone. And it's all goes, you know, goes in hand in hand with the tone because it's like the script is missing the, the off kilter angles. You can't, I'm not gonna write that into the script. You know what I mean? I'm not gonna write the compositions and whether it's a one or necessarily into the script, it's that feeling that needs to then be kind of added in the filmmaking process. But when I conceive, con, you know, kind of conceptualize a scene, and even in the writer's room, one of the first things we do when we break a scene is opening image. What's the first thing you see? And we have a final image, what's the last thing you see? And is this a wonder? And I, you know, it do, does this all take place in one continuous take? And and then you write that very differently than if it weren't. You know what I mean? So um, it's 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 a big big influence in the way we we break story and write the scripts. One thing that was in season one though was those those compositions where you're basically blowing the rule of thirds and putting right. putting your characters in the corners and sometimes, you know, even with more space behind them. Um, is that something that is in your head is is logical or is it more emotional? Is there like in your head? Do you justify the reason the composition is like this is because I want people to see or right. feel it this way, or is it more of an instinctive that captures? It's de going? it's definitely instinctive, and I think you know a lot of this has to be sort of instinctive. A lot of this. You're, you're essentially gut checking yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're clinically putting a composition out there and you're looking at it at the monitor and you're like, well, I'm following what we're doing, mm -hmm. but this doesn't feel right, but it's what we're doing. So, you know, you sh that if something doesn't feel right, you gotta let that sort of, you know, at least work that out and figure out why. But so a lot, so in my case, a lot of the off kilter shots felt perfect. In fact, any time, and there, there were times where we would have a new camera operator or whatever, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't know about, it, especially in the first season, and they would just frame it, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the rule of thirds, the eyes are right there, and it looks all, and everybody around would just look, look at each other. This doesn't feel right <laughs> at all. <laughs> this feels too normal. <laughs> um, and and so that, and then that kind of, that kind of told us. Oh, this is what the show is supposed to be. And I think that's what a lot of it is, is that the show kind of tells you what it wants to look like right. and how it wants to feel. What about um, Elliot's voiceover in the sense that, um, is that something where it feels like the story is going to work on its own and this is, you're adding a narrator to add another layer there, right? You're never, is there, is there an element of him ever carrying the, the story or is it always to kind of play with this, this sense of uh, a somewhat unreliable narrator and his relationship with us? Well, for, first of all, I love voiceover as a tool, especially when, you know, obviously that, you know, so, you know, Barry Lyndon mm -hmm. is a, a omniscient narrator, but great voiceover. Um, Clockwork Orange, very different, very uh, uh, present, I would say probably more like what we were doing in Mr. Robot. Um, Taxi Driver. Goodfellas, these are all, and the reason why I think voiceover works in those movies and what we, what I wanted to do with Mr. Robot was to provide a deeper kind of layer to the character that is actually in contrast to what you're, what you would see if it wasn't, if the voiceover wasn't there. There is a contrast, there, there, it's changing how we're seeing he's it. He's saying something and then thinking something, mm -hmm. the opposite, um, and, and that gives you, that gives you who he is right there. 
um, uh, without uh, w w without uh, having to necessarily uh, feel the subtext of the scene. And if because if there were no voiceover, Elliot doesn't really talk to people. Right. He's kind of shy and quiet. So it would be a, a, we would be missing, I think, a whole dimension. And on top of that, then the kind of the idea, uh, because the the thing about voiceover is. It becomes an intellectual thing. I think this is a lot of reasons why people bump on it. Is where is this voiceover coming from? Mm -hmm. Who is it? Who is this person talking to? You know, I'm, I'm watching The Handmaid's Tale right now. It's a great, great show. Um, and I, I often like think about that myself. Is she talking to me, or is mm -hmm. she just, you know, is this sort of this? Is like, this the future? Is she looking back? Right. What's the ten. The ten. Yeah. And my so, dad's had his inner thoughts, is he really, but it's weird because you're having him have a conversation. Exactly. Right? So, Which, by the way, when I, when I turned that on at home, my father's like, why the fuck is this guy talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I thought that, I mean, to me, that was the thing that kind of, where it kind of clicked for me because, well, I want Elliot to sort of create this imaginary friend and, and then who better for that imaginary friend to be than us. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of, you know, uh, it was a perfect companion to the VO, you know, it, yeah. it, it kind of worked organically. So all these things we've been talking about in the way that, it, from my point of view, you're really trying to bring a, a movie approach to a television show. And, and all these things that we're talking about have been such beneficial changes. The one part that I think has to be a struggle is because what we are talking about is last season was 12 episodes, I think. Mm -hmm. And so this one, I don't know, five, 10, 10. 10 okay. So the arcing something that is different than a movie in the sense of arcing out a story that's right. then a, a two hour, right. two hour story. And in particular, in the Mr. Robot world, where what is reality, where I am, huge plot twists. Right. And different, I have to imagine in that kind of blocking approach, there's disorientation to a certain degree of where am I in this larger narrative. Yeah. I know that's hard in a two-hour block, but not the the longer block and how all over. I don't mean all over this place in a, in a bad way. I mean just like the amount of twists and turns and yeah, yeah. its mental state. How do you, as a director of actors, keep you know? I've heard that your scripts are incredibly descriptive and are instantly kind of grounding people. So sometimes it helps just to read the scene. Right. But is that, do you have to leave extra time to work? I, in particular, I imagine Rami, like, like, okay, let's get focused here. Yeah. I mean, it's not with just Rami, it's with everybody. Um, I kind of have to pull them aside and, um, and say, okay, let's, let's just talk about where you were before this scene, you know, and and sometimes that's not a very easy answer because we could answer that. Okay, this is so we're shooting this scene from episode seven. Okay, so the last time that we saw you is in episode six, and you were talking to X because this happened. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes they'll say, "Well, wait a minute, why did that happen?" And then because in episode five, you know, and sometimes we have to peel the onion a little bit. Um, but the, you know, the benefit I have is, is that I was there from the inception of this entire thing. It's not that I remember every detail off the top of my head, which is why we have an amazing, amazing uh, script supervisor to help me kind of keep everything. I feel like you need an IQ test to be your script supervisor. <laughs> I mean, like I really don't know that I have the mental capacity to even, you know, yeah. know the story. Like, like to it, 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 it's like that uh, that diagram uh, that uh, Dom 
bombshells Darlene at the end of the season too. It can get very complicated. It's like yarn. Do people walk time. around with like charts in your world <laughs> of like binders like you, this? I mean, there are <laughs> huge binders, yes. Um, but I think honestly, it's it, because everybody comes prepared. Right. Um, it doesn't. We don't get too much into the weeds because we're, we, at the end of the day, when we're playing a scene, we really have to play in the moment. Mm -hmm. We can't in intellectualize. I mean, because you could keep going farther back. Well, the reason why you're doing this mm -hmm. is because as a kid, you you know got you know didn't have that ice cream. You know, so we we, we could get totally intellectual with it because. Acting is such an emotional thing and, and, and a very present thing. We, we try not to get too heady and I really kind of play, you know, we, we do that moment before and then really kind of go into the scene that way. And I'll leave the intellectual exercises to, you know, the writers. And also you have a, a nice prep beforehand. Do you do, do, do like a whole table read, a whole... We, do a, we binge table read. Binge table read. <laughs> Over two days. Um, kind of split it up. You have been very clear, and apparently you've been very clear with USA uh, from the start that this is a four to five season thing. Yeah. Does that mean that when you conceived of this world, you and I don't expect I'm not going to ask, but did you have a sense of conclusion? Did you have a sense of, of final act? Well, where it's going to go? Yeah. So remember that. Um, that this was originally conceived as a feature, mm -hmm. right? So when I started writing it as a feature, I kind of broadly knew, okay, here's the first act, here's how it's, mm -hmm. the end of the first act was the robot reveal, and um, and then, you know, and this is the midpoint, and I definitely knew what the ending was. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, turned that into a pilot as opposed to finishing it as a feature, but I always knew that this was still the long game, the long arc for the whole mm -hmm. uh, for the whole series. And when I kind of roughly guesstimated after the first season, given how that first act, the first thirty pages turned into ten hours, um, I kind of said, "Okay, well, I bet it's about four seasons," you know, because um, the second act tends to be a little longer than the first and third act. And now that you've written three seasons, are you sensing it's a four? I don't know. I, you know, I you think, it could, I think it could be five. Yeah, okay. I think it could be five. Um, the, well, you obviously, I know you've done a lot of research and are very up to date on the, the hacking world and the, and, the, and the sense of what's going on in terms of technology and what the possibilities are, and you are drawing story ideas from that. But that having been said, the, you're creating your whole world. This never, and you tell me, you want your show to be relevant, but you never necessarily want it to be, you know, of the now. You know, it's its own little world. And yet, in the last year, like, I mean, it's just like... And there's elements here, like, I know you have personally have no problem being political. No. But... My sense. Well, can, can we can we just say? I just want to say something yeah. about that because I don't think it's political to dislike Trump. I mean, I think he, I don't think it's controversial mm -hmm. to say he's a bad president. He's clearly a bad president. I mean, I, I, I we're, watch, we're watching like, someone have a mental breakdown. I, 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 yeah, real I mean, he's clearly not equipped to do the job, and yeah. he's clearly makes uh, lies and makes a ton of mistakes, and uh, and he's not he's unfit to be the president. I don't think it's a Republican or a Democrat mm -hmm. thing. So I kind of feel like it's a, you know. Fair, fair. But, but anyway. Fair, yeah. fair enough. But you, you have no problem. Okay, let me read it. You have no problem personally right. 
talking about current events. But right. my sense is you as a storyteller, it's not that you want your film, you want your film to be somewhat grounded in some of the, the realities going on, but you don't, there's just this weird, I imagine going from second into third season in the world, like yeah. literally lighting on fire in Russia and stuff, that there's gotta be a weird thing for you in writing season three. In, in my, yeah, so I mean, we were, we all were we were in the writers' room when the election went down and mm -hmm. when we saw the tide turning and then we all decided to we got we got too depressed and we all went home to 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 be with our loved ones um, um, and we talk about it we we you know the writers' room is very fluid I mean I don't I you know creativity I think it does not fit. Uh, work hours sometimes so we all come in and we sometimes just shoot the shit and a lot of that was talking about what had happened and um, I can't we can't I can't help just like the first season and the second season I think we're you know I think you know good writing comes from what charges you what you're energized by what uh, what you're reading that day what you're feeling that day and that is going to come into play um, I don't, you know, because our world, because the Mr. Robot world is still in an alternate 2015, um, we, you know, we act, thankfully don't have to uh, enter. Obama, Obama's and, forever president. Obama's forever, forever president. president. <laughs> and we don't have to enter uh, this Trump nightmare. Did, but, Mr. Bro, did Mr. Robot, is that, is that, is that the Mr. Robot caused Trump? Is that how, is that the season <laughs> going to end? <laughs> <laughs> I do not want that. I, I don't mind. I don't mind a sad ending. That's that's too, that's too horrific, even for me. Um, but I, I, you know, so so I think I I I think a lot of the energy. I mean, I'm 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 never going to deny that the energy of what's happened, but it coincided with what we're doing in mm -hmm. the third season, which I'm not necessarily going to get into the details mm -hmm. of. But I mean, we kind of went down the road of this sort of dystopic version. And here we are mm -hmm. present, you know, present day. Um, and um, and so it kind of went hand in hand to a certain extent. But uh, at the same time, I think, yeah, of course, it informed, uh, informed some of our writing. Uh, one last thing I want to ask you about um, uh, this Metropolis project. Yeah. Which, um, I read that your writer's room right now is a concept room. Yeah. I'm assuming what that kind of is, is this kind of like thinking about what does a metropolis of 2018 look like? Is that kind of, is that, is that kind of what, is that when we talk about a concept room, is that what's? Well, it, it's, it's a little bit more than that in that um, it's like when I started thinking about Mr. Robot, I thought about it as a movie. Mm -hmm. And I thought about the complete arc. And that is the story. The one story I'm going to tell is this story. Mm -hmm. So it, that, that's really kind of what the Metropolis concept room was about. What, what is that one arc? Mm -hmm. I'm not, uh, I don't think I'll ever be personally the showrunner that is going to. Uh, uh, just come up with a first season concept hook and we can just go on forever and you know I think I think I'm always going to be the guy that going into it I'm going to want to know the complete arc the complete journey what we're building towards um, and then you know within that we, we flexible and you can play around and go off on tangents or whatever but but to have that as kind of the guiding principle of the show and you're leaving open the idea that you would direct it yes okay I apologize 
I didn't realize that you were involved with the Laura Poitras movie Risk. How were you involved with... with uh, she contacted... I'm a huge fan of hers. Right. Season 4 is amazing. She contacted me, um, you know, and she showed me a cut and I gave her some notes and she really want, you know, wanted me on board as an executive producer and I was, obviously it was beyond flattered and, mm -hmm. and felt lucky and excited to be a, a small part of it. I mean, I thought, you know, I think it's great. Have you seen it? I have. I did. I saw the... the the Lincoln Center premiere. So it's yeah. it's pretty harrowing, yeah. yeah. And he's pretty interesting, the the Julian. <laughs> uh, Sam, you've been very Thank very you. generous with your time. Uh, good luck with. Um, so you're you're doing a block, and then you're taking a break, which I understand is, is a rather significant break, and then you're coming back for for a second block. A second block. Yeah. All right, and we'll see it in the fall. Nice. Yes. All right. Awesome. Sam, thank you so much. Thank you. Mm -hmm.